and one and two and two and one oh shucks i can't dance hello and welcome to stories from the open gov a podcast dedicated to telling the stories about what open government and open data look like my name is richard pietro and today i'm joined by nathaniel heller He's a former co-chair of the Open Government Partnership and co-founder and former executive director of Global Integrity. That's a transparency and anti-corruption NGO. But you might be more familiar with their creation, the OpenGov Hub, the world's first co-working space focused on open government and transparency. Now he's the managing director of Geneva Global, a certified B Corp that provides advice and services to help philanthropists, charitable organizations, and corporations maximize their social impact. Hello, Nathaniel, and thanks for joining us. I'm happy to be here. Thanks a lot for having me. All right, so let's get right down to it. You published an article on March 26, 2020, called The Strategic Philanthropist's Approach to COVID-19. In it, you wrote, the short-term actions are relatively straightforward give money, be flexible and, and accommodating, and prioritize operating support to charities over programmatic grants. Can you tell us how this approach is different than what would be the traditional approach if we were not facing this crisis right now? Sure. I think the first thing to mention is that certainly those are not original ideas. There's There's been a lot of clamor around this. What's a little bit interesting to me is that there's been this debate for really, I don't know, probably a solid 10 to 15 years in in sort of the world of philanthropy about trying to move away from tightly prescribed, um, you know, project grants, which basically say, I'll give you $10. And in exchange for that $10, you must do the following things, you know, which are basically and usually a project towards more very flexible core operating support, which is basically, I give you $10. And I trust you to make the best use of that $10. Good luck. <laughs> and you don't have to commit to me to do anything with them necessarily. And that seems like what actually a lot of people think about is philanthropy in their minds, but it actually is still the minority of grant making out there in the world today. So the crisis has forced that discussion to the surface again. It's not a new one at all, but it's just forcing it back up. And it's been one of the easiest things that a lot of institutional philanthropies, as well as I think some of the smaller family foundations or family offices, something easy that they can do is to say, okay, we will try and shift existing grants away from these, you know, quote, restricted grants towards more of the unrestricted operating type of grants in order to provide at least a degree of flexibility and fungibility um, to our grantees so that they can figure out ways to both cope and respond to uh, the current crisis. So basically what you're essentially calling for is more trust between a philanthropist and an organization and how that money will be used. Am, am I wrong in making that, that assumption? Yeah, I think that's part of it. Um, it's, about, you know, it's about having a willingness to, you know, to trust, trust grantees to do the right thing with those dollars and to maybe reallocate them and to completely reprogram them in some cases. You know, we're mm. actually, I was just literally on the phone a few minutes ago with some colleagues internally, we run a huge out-of-school kids accelerated learning program in East Africa. And right now, all of those kids are at home, like most of the other billion kids on the planet. And so we're having to pretty rapidly reevaluate how we think about budgets and programming for the entire year and potentially needing to redeploy philanthropic capital in ways we had no expectation around, you know, 
two months ago, never mind two years ago when say some of these grants agreements were signed. So I think that's exactly it. It's about, you know, trusting good social entrepreneurs and sort of program operators to make smart decisions that in a way that they are forced to now respond to a public health crisis that nobody anticipated. Um, but alongside the trust is, I think, a, a certain amount of, it requires a certain amount of willingness for grant makers to let go and to not be sort of master planners in the way that is a very bad habit for a lot of institutional philanthropies to be so tightly um, constrained by, you know, five-year strategies and, um, you know, kind of pre-baked funding allocations of a certain pie size, you know, that's, that's the real change management that's got to happen internal to philanthropies as well. One of the, uh, the thoughts that came to mind when you were explaining it a moment ago is a little bit what Netflix did to the studio model of say, for example, television. So before sort of Netflix came around executives, you know, Castle Rock and BC, you know, they would give people an opportunity to put a pilot together and they would give the show notes. And this is what we want to do. This is the kind of show we want. It was very structured and, and, and really limited creators and creative minds to really explore. And if a pilot didn't really work so well, then they wouldn't get a chance to do a full season, enter Netflix. And they says, we don't care. We just want content. We're going to give you the opportunity to do a full season instead of just trying to sell us on one pilot. And we'll give, we'll let our, our creators the opportunity to really flush out their full idea instead of just giving us a quick little bite. Is that a sort of like a bit of an analogy here for you in terms of letting these, these organizations really explore their own potential? Yeah, no, I, I think there's, there's some parallels there. On the flip side of all of this, it's not, I think it's important to say that there are, there's plenty of good rationale and logic for philanthropy that is tightly targeted at a certain programmatic outcome. Basically, there's a rationale for, quote, restricted grant. Um, it's just, I think everybody's been sort of calling for this greater sort of equilibrium between the two. And yeah, but I think the parallel you described is, again, from a very different domain in terms of entertainment, but it's, it's, it's the similar set of dynamics at play here in philanthropy. So you also wrote in that article that during this time of need, governments and businesses can only do so much. Philanthropy will have to fill a gap, a vital gap in the coming months. What vital gaps do you see forthcoming? To me, one of them is is looking around the bend in the corner a little bit in terms of what what comes next. Uh, you know, governments and businesses, for a lot of obvious reasons, are, however imperfect, pretty well suited to dealing with immediate you know crisis and relief efforts. Um, you know, it's hard for a, a philanthropy or a nonprofit to deal with the challenges of, say, procuring you know tens of millions of masks or ho putting hospital beds into place or dealing with the kind of immediate public health relief that's required and response that's required. But I think where philanthropy and sort of social entrepreneurs generally can play a more leading role is in thinking through the ripple effects of the second and third order priorities that have to happen and need to be sort of debated and discussed when some of the dust settles, when the, when the curve is flattened, so to speak, there's a bunch of interesting work and really hard and contentious debates that are going to happen around how do, what is the new normal look like? And I think that's a really interesting place where a lot of us can play a more active role. So it's going to be less about hospital beds and, uh, you know, masks. And it may be a little bit more about, you know, when can people go back to work and what does that look like? Um, what about the positive effects of this crisis it had on climate change and climate mitigation? And what's going to be that debate? Um, and a host of other really interesting authority kind of second and third order 
affect conversations that need to be had. And that's where I, I think there's a gap to be filled. I don't think we'll see governments and businesses necessarily lead on some of that just because it's not their sweet spot in many respects. Well, you're the former co-chair of the Open Government Partnership, and I know many people in the community see this COVID-19 as a bit of a catalyst for change. Do you think that could very well be one of those gaps a little bit, that government needs that help to, you know what, we've, we've come to the realization you've been right all along, and, and we need your help in creating this new uh, open government way of doing things? It's a really good question. I truthfully don't know. I think there's a lot of opportunity opportunity there. Um, on the flip side, we've seen a lot of bad actor type governments predictably abuse the crisis mm-hmm. and the situation to push, you know, increasingly xenophobic and nationalistic and exclusionary approaches to government. So I think it can cut both ways. Basically, the crisis to me is values neutral in a certain sense. I think it can be harnessed, as you were saying, to advance more progressive open government agendas, but it can equally be harnessed to do a lot of crummy things as well. And you can pick your favorite that actor government around the world, whether it's, you know, the Trump administration in the US or Bolsonaro in Brazil or a few others elsewhere and see what that looks like. So I don't think it resets the calculus around any of this, but certainly opens up space for those same fights to be had, um, you know, in the months to come. Well, so going back to your article for a moment here, you went into details about the broken feedback loop between uh, donors, not-for-profits and the actual consumers of those not-for-profit services. Can you explain to the audience the, that broken feedback loop a little bit? Sure. You know, my first uh, way of explaining that, or at least kind of tip, is to look at the work of an organization like Feedback Labs, on which I used to serve on the board of directors. So, in the interest of full disclosure, but I think uh, groups in in the movement around something like Feedback Labs is a, an important place to start in understanding that philanthropy is often kind of structurally screwed up because you have a situation where instead of um, the quote beneficiaries of programs, whether it's certain communities or sort of marginalized um, individuals in a place, um, being able to provide feedback to those spending money on their behalf. Instead, there's a sort of disintermediation happening where you have implementing partners or operate program operators or grantees who instead are sort of playing middleman or middlewoman right between communities they're helping and those doling out the financial resources to make that change happen. And that's the fundamental disconnect that's always been there and probably will always be there. I don't think any of us um, should delude ourselves that there won't be a bit of a sort of triangular relationship. But where people have seen some really interesting breakthroughs is when they sort of tackle that design challenge head on and figure out ways of soliciting feedback very directly so that those doling out philanthropic dollars have a pretty, there are ways to get a real pulse check around how communities and quote beneficiaries are feeling and experiencing aid, assistance, programmatic interventions. And when you start to really embrace those kinds of data, you start to get some really interesting um, behavioral change, both from donors themselves, um, who suddenly feel actually connected to and have a source of data from actual communities and program implementers and operators who kind of sit in the middle of all this, who would actually start to feel a little bit more pressure to perform and to respond to community needs and suddenly aren't just worried about what the donor thinks or perceives they're doing. That's the key, I think, shift is getting away from that donor-grantee relationship being the most important one and starting to nudge it towards donor community or kind of end beneficiary um, dynamics being the ones that should really govern and drive and, and create positive pressure on how future donor dollars flow. 
It's interesting because that sounds very similar to an analogy that was given to me a number of years ago when I was first getting into the space of open government, which is there's something like the clay layer of government that sort of stops the great ideas coming from the top, whether it's like a deputy minister or or an ADM. And then you have the grassroots sort of, you know, workers within the government pushing up great ideas. And then you have that sort of clay layer in the middle that that there's no seepage, there's no sort of connection from one to the other. It sounds very similar. Am I wrong in thinking this? No, no, I think that, that there's truth to that. Yeah, yeah, it's this challenge of, you know, if, uh, you know, philanthropy X is giving $10 to organization Y to benefit community Z, that sort of a telephone tag approach is where the breakdowns happen, right? Um, and so it's th- this whole effort around feedback loops is fundamentally about trying to connect X with Z instead of X having to go through Y or Z having to go through Y in order to tell X what the heck's going wrong <laughs> in terms of a particular program or maybe what's going right. And that's something's really magical that we didn't realize and we need to be spending more money sort of doubling down on on that program. So that it's as simple and as hard as that. Yeah, absolutely. Are you able to give us some interesting examples of of not broken feedback loops like what would be sort of, if someone wanted to know, like, what's a great case study to fix this broken feedback loop, what would you tell them to, to have a look at? Yeah, I mean, the place I continue to go to is a lot of the resources that Feedback Labs has assembled over the last five plus years. Um, I mean, there's really interesting stuff from healthcare, for example. And this is, shouldn't, I don't think shouldn't and won't come as a big surprise, but when you start actually talking to patients um, and asking about their experiences with healthcare, instead of going through, you know, an intermediary organization that may be providing those services, but themselves or who are not the patients, but taking money and trying to provide frontline services, you know, when you, but you actually go out and do systematic surveys and polls and even conversations and key informant interviews um, and discussions with patients, like you start to get really visceral and sort of hard and good actionable feedback instead of just relying on, you know, the nonprofit that may be deploying philanthropic capital on behalf of, say, a low-income community in order to provide primary healthcare services. That stuff starts, there's a lot of, there's sort of interesting literature and sort of set of case studies around that. Um, you know, that's that stuff I really like. Um, there's been a bunch of write-ups and synthesis around some of the, the early feedback um, loop, the power of feedback, which was in the Sanford Social Innovation Review, is chock full of some really interesting examples, um, you know, public health, criminal justice, tech, um, and, you know, they're all anecdotal, but you start to see the pattern, which is about connecting actual people and communities with those doling out philanthropic capital. And when that happens, you start to to get around some of those um, inefficiencies. Now, again, going back to your article, because it was very insightful, you, you had some very strong words when it came to leadership during the COVID-19 crisis. And more specifically, you talk about how uh, not-for-profits and, and charity leadership need to carefully balance between deluding themselves that COVID-19 does not present them as a potential risk and overreacting as well to the crisis. How does someone know where that line sits? Like, what is the advice for those leaders on finding that balance between overreacting and and sort of the hubris that they, they may have? Yeah, I mean, I, I wish there were kind of an easy to use formula or something. It's really, I think it is an art form. And it's where, you know, good leaders really shine is just having a bit of a, an intuition and a spider sense around that kind of tightrope and how to walk it. <laughs> but I think there is some truth to both of those approaches. One is to, you know, is to not overreact. And I, I can recall in the first, I've seen less of it in the last 
month, but in the first month of the crisis, you just, I saw at a number of just friends and family kind of organizations and even clients of ours at Geneva Global, this sort of uh, anxiety driven perceived need to like do something and do something big and different and radical and like a desire to almost freak out intentionally as a way to cope with (laughs) the crisis, which is not super helpful unless it's rooted in like, you know, our industry is collapsing. And so we have to pivot right now in order to survive. I mean, that's, there's certain industries and sectors where that may be the case, but that has to be balanced. So that's an overreaction on one end, the overreaction on the other end of the spectrum as well. You know, I'm not in public health. So why does this matter to me? But I mean, the economic ripple effects of this will absolutely touch everything all of us do for years to come. And if you're not thinking about those second and third order effects, you are kind of sticking your hand in the sand a bit, regardless of what sector you work in or what industry, you know, you might operate in. It's just, it, this is too big and too macro to not touch pretty much everything and everybody in some way, shape or form. So it's, you know, striking that balance between not going ridiculously crazy just to have a cathartic moment, but also not being so blind that you get, you know, you get caught off guard eventually. At some point, the ripple effects will wash through what we all do. And it's just a question of when and to what degree of severity. Um, you know, right now, if you're any kind of consumer facing industry, of course, you're just crippled and kneecapped. Uh, but that doesn't mean that the service industry and, and industries and some of the others won't feel it. The professional services won't feel them at some point. Um, it's just a question of how, when, and, you know, again, uh, how severe it'll be. So I'm curious to know, and I mean, this has been a couple of months, technically a month, perhaps since our official lockdowns, how has donors and, and philanthropists in general reacted to this? Are they investing more money? Are they just shifting how they're, they're investing? They're, What's sort of been their reaction to to this crisis? I don't think there's a universal reaction or way to summarize it. I mean, philanthropies and donors are not a universal, common, homogeneous black box, right? So you've got everything from big institutional philanthropies. And even in that bucket, you have radically different immediate short-term responses. Some are in a situation where they are designed around and relying on big endowments, which have taken a massive hit because of equities markets and other impacts related to the stock market crash and saying we've got to pull back or we already know there's not going to be a lot of new money in the future. And you have others for whom that's less of an issue because of just the way that they're financially built or engineered. Um, and frankly, may have had different strategies from a uh, you know uh, a financial planning standpoint. So even there, it's hard to point to a single sort of response. Some seem to be fine and are going to ride it out status quo. Others are going to retrench. I think then you have smaller you know, family foundations, family offices, or even medium-sized philanthropies. But again, even there, it, it seems to be, to my, you know, admittedly sort of small universe of, of experience and relationships, very different depending on who you're talking to. Some seem totally copacetic and are fine. <laughs> and again, I think it has to do with how, where they draw their spending power from and to the extent it's rooted or not, literally in the stock market or elsewhere. I mean, you may, be, you may have foundations that are just sitting on and are able to spend from cash reserves and or, you know, far more conservative investments like bonds or treasuries. Whatever's going on in the stock market has very little impact. Others are severely impacted by, you know, a big drop in the equities markets. So it's really, really hard to say. And then you've got finally kind of the, the bilateral and multilateral donors, whether it's the World Bank or the regional development banks, the UN agencies, et cetera, et cetera. And that's a whole different part of the universe, right? From a quote donor perspective. And they have their own challenges, but also are insulated in a certain way um, because they're frankly, most of their money is coming from governments who actually might be spending more right now as part of the stimulus and the response to the crisis. 
we, we got to start thinking about wrapping up because you're, you're, you we're, we're short on time with you, unfortunately. Uh, but I'm, we're definitely enjoying, I'm sure, this conversation. Uh, there's one last question about that article that I want to mention, which is that you talk about the difference between instigating social change versus creating a sustainable charitable organization. Uh, can you share a little bit with us what you mean by that? Sure. The point I was trying to get at was I, I do think there's a bit of a risk in fetishizing nonprofit organizations for their own sake. You know, and I say that as somebody who had co-founded and run a place and, you know, has been in leadership positions at others. And it's not to belittle the importance of organizations, but, uh, you know, my strong belief is that most donors, even most staff at most organizations are in it for the social change and the mission, not about sustaining organizations over decades necessarily, unless those organizations are required in order to get at the social change that we're all after. And it takes a little bit of, you kind of have to swallow hard when you say that or embrace it. But if that's really why we're all in this business, then the first order response to these kinds of crises shouldn't necessarily be about how do we save organization X? It should be about how do we save the mission-driven work we're trying to do? And if organizations need to combine, merge, or fall by the wayside, that might be sad and short-term painful, but it may not necessarily be the worst outcome in all cases. I think that's at least my own sort of belief around this. Um, you do end up getting, I think, seeing scenarios where you have very sclerotic and sort of ossified nonprofit or sort of mission-driven organizations who just kind of lumber on decade after decade with similar leadership and staffing in place, don't really grow, don't really shrink, but just kind of like exist. And I don't know if that's really what the end goal is for this work. Um, that's just my own two cents. We know we're not an employment, this isn't an employment scheme <laughs> just to hire people and to do projects. Like if that were the game, you know, we would be in it for a different set of reasons, but it's about positive social change and needing to keep kind of the eye on that ball. And organizations are simply a vehicle to get there. They're not the end all or the, the reason we're doing this. So like I said, we're running out on time, but I want to give you an opportunity here. And thank you so much for answering questions on that article. But there's a lot of things that you're working on. Are there any projects that you want to talk about a little bit right now that you're working on that perhaps the audience would be interested to know about? Yeah, we do a lot of, I think, interesting things. I mean, we're in, like everybody else kind of navigating the waters of COVID-19 and what that means. But we've, we've been able to, I think, keep things going on a couple of really interesting flagship programs. One of them is a big uh, new fund that we helped to stand up and run called the Girls First Fund, which is about a, even in its earliest days, a $50 million plus uh, multi-donor fund with, I think, 12 or 13 different donors who have put in money to end child marriage. Oh. Um, over the sort of short and medium term horizon globally, which is a pretty audacious and big goal, but one that we do think is achievable. And that one, you know, despite all the lockdown and everything else is something we're continuing to press ahead with and, you know, putting out a lot of, pushing out a lot of grant money to a lot of very grassroots organizations and some very tough places to really start to move the needle at a bottom up level um, in key countries around ending child marriage. Um, another one that I, I really love is the work we do with the, something called the Speed Schools program, um, which I mentioned a bit earlier, which is a, a, a really successful high-impact program that's gotten hundreds of thousands of kids back into school and caught up um, when they've been out of school for years on end in both Uganda and Ethiopia. And we, you know, we're, we're grappling with the same thing that school systems ev everywhere else on the planet are grappling with, which is, well, what do you do when you can't get kids in the classrooms? So we're exploring SMS, and radio broadcast, television broadcast, et cetera as some sort of stopgap to keep the schooling going. But it's been a really 
I mean, I, I don't take any credit for it because I joined, you know, several months ago, but for almost a decade now, um, the amount of progress um, that they've been able to get um, out of a program that's fundamentally low cost on a per kid basis, but getting kids essentially three years of schooling in one and getting them back into mainstream public schools after that in some very tough places, uh, it's just super impressive. So it's been, those kinds of programs for me are a source of real kind of grounding and also inspiration when you know, I complain about my kids annoying me here at home during homeschooling. <laughs> you know, we got a, a whole lot easier than most most folks and most families do. So those are those are two I really like. And, you know, we have super expert teams that run them, so I don't take any real credit personally. But um, just pretty, pretty cool to see them able to still operate despite all the constraints that the COVID-19 crisis has placed on them. Oh, it's, uh, it's fantastic work you guys are doing. And, and again, a lot of the listeners were sort of in our Western society bubble, and we, we don't really get to see and understand what's happening in some other parts of the country, sorry, other parts of the world. So, so thank you for giving us some of that perspective and, and in sharing as well some more insights about the article that you wrote. And so I want to thank you so much for taking part in the interview today. Of course, I'm delighted. Really, thanks for having me and you know, I appreciate you still doing this amidst your own lockdown. It's, it's a credit to your own sanity and ability to sort of compartmentalize things. Well, I think we're all trying to do our best right now. So this wraps up the episode, and I want to thank our audience for listening. And as usual, please leave a rating or a comment on how to make the podcast better, or if there's any guests or any stories that you'd like to hear. So until next time, let's make it open.